Welcome. I'm Frank. I'm here with Chris, and we are One Story Growth with our podcast. Chris, how's it going? Doing well. How are you? Pretty good. I wanted to talk today about this article on Bloomberg. The article that ran uh, earlier this week was the rich are minting money in the pandemic like never before. And when you open up the article, it pretty bluntly puts two things up top. One, the country's most well-off benefit from Federal Reserve policies. And two, access to financial markets shape nation's unequal recovery. So basically what's happened in the year of the coronavirus and into 2021 here, we had a federal government and a Federal Reserve Bank that have done everything in their power to support big business. The Federal Reserve essentially propped up asset prices and stock prices uh, with everything in their toolkit to basically backstop all of these companies from, uh, you know, collapsing uh, to a certain extent. Many companies would have been fine without this, but there were lots of over leveraged companies that were in dire situations back in March and April as the country shut down and investors and the markets were all panicking. The Fed essentially expanded its balance sheet, basically the assets that the Fed has purchased from open market operations from $4 trillion to $7 trillion in the matter of a month and a half there from March through May. And Interestingly enough, the market cap of the S&P 500 recovered by about that same gap by about $3 trillion. So while the Fed didn't go in and buy the S&P, their actions and what they did to provide a backstop to bad investments or over leveraged companies boosted the value of the corporations and all these publicly traded stocks. Uh, by about every dollar that the Fed kind of injected into the system. They did this kind of a number of different ways. They, one of the big buckets was injecting a lot of money into the corporate bond uh, markets. They essentially went in and bought all these junk bonds and low grade bonds or even high quality bonds that were available to be purchased on the open market essentially driving down the rate at which any corporation can issue new debt. So then all of these companies essentially issued new debt at extremely low interest rates and kind of ensured that they uh, were, they didn't need to sell their own stock in order to raise cash. They, instead of selling stock that they had repurchased over the last decade or 20, 30 years, um, you know, stock, stock buybacks have been kind of a major area of, I guess, uh, public company investment over the last five to 10 years specifically, instead of selling all the stock they repurchased, which uh, would have been uh, pretty poorly timed as their stock prices were not uh, as high as they were when they initially bought a lot of those shares, they uh, didn't have to sell. And instead they could issue debt in order to, you know, fund operations. Uh, so yeah, the, the Fed there kind of created a moral hazard and, signal to companies, it's okay, you can keep doing what you're doing, keep buying back your shares, keep giving huge bonuses to your CEOs that are linked to share prices, 
And uh, it's okay, we have your back because at the end of the day, we can't allow stocks to go down. And, you know, in doing so, essentially who owns stocks, right? If you look at the data, it says that uh, 80% of all stocks or stock value is held by the top 10% of Americans. Uh, about 1% of Americans own about 50% of all stock equity. So they're supporting these asset prices that are already owned by the richest Americans. And it's kind of at the expense of everyone else. They uh, inject all this money into the system and drive up prices for everything. I mean, it starts with stocks, but you know, when people sell some level of stocks, they buy real estate or other assets and it leads to inflation. And if you're not, if you don't own hard assets, you're getting uh, slowly eaten away by the inflation that the Federal Reserve is creating by injecting all this new money into the system. And it's, it's single-handedly driving the wealth gap to levels we've never seen before. And this is a huge bucket of equality that nobody wants to talk about. They want to look at so many other factors that can kind of go into this, but everybody ignores this huge, huge elephant in the room of what the Federal Reserve has been doing. Chris, do you think that set the stage for kind of what the article says? Yeah, and uh, also, you know, you're saying since this coronavirus has happened, I know that obviously the Fed itself has been printing out, wasn't it 20% or something along those lines of uh, new currency? And as well sure. as putting that out into the market, I guess you could say. And then as well as all the activity of its assets that are increasing and buying and its net worth. We've seen studies published now recently as well. Um, I don't know if it was in this article or not, but they say how all that wealth has kind of been concentrated in the people that already had it anyway. So that's yeah. kind, of, kind of becoming a trend, you know? For sure. Um, the article definitely speaks to, you know, how the rich are continuing to mint money at a pace that they kind of never have before. And it's at the expense of everyone else, you know, as these asset yeah. prices have been supported. And to your point about the actual increase in the money supply, yeah, I think if you look at the M2 chart, it uh, it looks it looks broken, essentially, because over time, the, the money supply, uh, I guess, money minted by the Treasury had grown between like three and 5% a year, usually closer to three than five over the last 25, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Uh, and then when you look at 2020, the money supply grew by 21 or 22%, essentially means 21% of all the dollars in existence right now out in the world uh, were created yes. <laughs> during this. Yeah, pandemic. that's what I read. That's what yeah. I read. That's right. Well, not fun. You know, that's what we're trying to go for here, I guess, is that yep. kind of bringing attention to, but by at least getting people to acknowledge it and understand, you know, this is kind of what's happening. Yeah, it's, it happens under everybody's nose. I think when people think about what the Federal Reserve does, it's a big black box to people and they just assume that they have the people's best interest uh, in mind when they make these decisions to inject liquidity into the markets. But uh it's, it's really hard to believe that based on the outcome. I mean, you assume that they're competent people and they can kind of project forward what the ramifications of their actions are going to be. And if they looked at these actual ramifications today, they couldn't with a straight face tell you that it's benefited 
the working class American in any real way, or yeah. nearly as much as it's benefited the the class of people that own all the stocks and the assets. They're, yeah, the most egregious case of, I guess, you know, this wasn't even strictly the Federal Reserve. This was, uh, there was a bailout of the airlines back in, I think it was April or May, as obviously travel shut down, nobody wanted to go anywhere. All of the yeah. airlines had spent, I saw a chart, they, looked, they showed like the top six airlines in the United States combined all of their free cash flow, basically all of their uh, earned or saved, all of their in, uh, earnings essentially went to stock buybacks for over over a decade or 15 years. It, uh, they essentially didn't, yeah, they didn't hold any substantial cash positions for a rainy day to kind of uh, have a, you know, be protected in case of a black swan event like this. They all completely over leveraged and they bought back their own stock from the, from the markets to basically inflate the price of their shares. The people that make this decision to take their cash and buy stock with it are the same people that have their bonuses tied to stock performance. So CEOs in these airlines, all of their comp is tied to stock price performance. So of course they're incentivized to take any cash the company has and use it to buy back their own stock. And yeah. then when this black swan event hit, yeah, they came to the government and said, oh no, we're gonna die if you don't bail us out and give us all the support. So they, the uh, Congress passed like a $25 billion bailout to get the airlines, uh, you know, back solvent. Yeah. And it's, you know, when they do that, it's such a moral hazard here because now why would anybody not do what the airlines were doing? Because they know that in the event of a black swan, they'll be protected. So they're not going to change their decisions going forward because there's no incentive to prepare for a rainy day when there's no difference between a well-prepared company and a company that was hyper-aggressive in terms of eventual outcome. So it's it's just a just not a good uh, standard to set. Yeah, that's a... Uh... I guess kind of like the dangerous game you play, you know, when those companies, like I would argue that they didn't need to be, you know, bailed out. But at the same time, like then, then you get into the argument of like, well, do we need airlines? How necessary are they? There will be other people to replace them, blah, 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 you know, all that different thing. Yeah. That's I think what happens there. I guess the free market argument is like these yeah. airlines would have been, uh, they would have gone through bankruptcies if they needed it, or they could have tapped other private sources of funding. Uh, for sure, where an for investor would have come work. in, yeah, like big money would have come in and provided them that bridge, but it would have been at a market rate given the risk profile, and the airlines sure. would have, which I'm sure they wouldn't have been able to do, yeah, because yeah. no one at that risk. And then you get into also like there's like all the business aspect of it into the market aspect, and then there's the I guess you could say their actual products and what they do and don't do. Yeah, it's sure. crazy. Have to look at Boeing. I think they they got a lot of federal help. I know they have huge government contracts, obviously, for uh, all the aircrafts that they sell. But uh, they their new airline, the Airbus that you were talking about, I know they had problems with their new models, but then they also had the problem with the planes that were just falling out of the sky. Well, that's what I mean. Is that right. because like it doesn't quite? They don't quite have their. Uh... I guess reputation that they had back in the eighties and nineties and not saying that we would necessarily know anything about it, but I'm sure many people could speak to how they used to be 
you know, at the top of their game. And now it's more about those including, or I guess you could say not including, but looking to increase their quarterly reports, like what you were saying, is that Mm -hmm. they're more incentivizing to try and just push something to market as opposed to, you know, a higher quality of good. A couple more points on the, on what happened during the initial lockdowns and what it meant for working class people. The unemployment rate spiked up to somewhere between 15 and 20% over back in early 2020. Yeah. And it's it's still super high. It's still over 6%, I think. And while we had these huge spikes in unemployment, we're also seeing the labor force participation rate uh, continue to fall. That's been on a pretty consistent decline for a couple decades now. Uh, it was, I believe, close to 70% of people between the age of, I want to say it's 18 and the retirement age of 70. 70% 65, of 70. that age yeah. group were either actively looking for a job or were uh, or had a job that number is down to 63 point or it fell to 60 percent at the peak at the, at the peak of the the virus hype and it's it's so it probably like what, April, yeah it's like 61 percent. so that's hovering near the lows as well percentage of people working age that are either actively looking for a job or have a job so that's not a good number as well. So when you look at unemployment, it's not the total picture. You need to also look at the participation rate because a lot of people have just given up looking. Absolutely. Well, then you have people like in the uh, service industry that be working, you know, where they're like waiters working in restaurants, you know, small businesses and stuff like that, that would just, whether they've had to close their doors or they've gone to like the, uh, what is it, takeout dining. So then you mm-hmm. automatically have to have people cutting back and, on their amount of workforce. So their percentage of, um, you know, totals are going to be completely changed when they they still have the same amount of bills in electricity costs. They still got the same amount of bills in, you know, their land, whether it's renting the building or, you know, taxes on it or whatever, but they're not going to have the uh, same amount of business or the what necessarily would they you know, and enough people to pull in and pay all those people. Sure. So it's tricky, very tricky, this yeah. kind it of economy. Because like what you're saying, like the participation rate versus the unemployment rate, then you have the people that were collecting unemployment that were, can, uh, yeah. You also feel bad for small business too, because a lot of retail, and I guess a lot of business, small business is technically retail. I don't know the actual percentage, but... You know, all retail, a lot of retail and restaurant industry, a lot of the service industry, that all falls under small business. And there have been government enforced lockdowns and shutdowns of all these businesses. So I understand, given we are forcing these businesses to close their doors, I feel the government should be providing relief. I don't know, we could argue or debate the merits of these shutdowns all day. I mean, there's evidence that said, that can show that the shutdowns might be overall counterproductive, but that's not for today. But uh, given they're forced to shut down, you you know need to provide them some level of support to allow them to continue their operations without 
needing to file bankruptcy or something. And we did do that through the PPP loan program. That was the payroll protection stuff. But yeah, you know, and that it was, was great. It was nice, but it's still it was nice, but technically, it wasn't a, yeah, I, I was just going to say that it's, it's payroll protection in that you needed to keep people on staff in order to receive funds, essentially. Like that money was earmarked for your employees. So if your business is down 90% because of the lockdowns, how much staff do you really need? Because yeah. you're even eventually at the end of the year, you're going to have to pay payroll taxes on the money that you dished out as PPP money. So the businesses are going to be on the hook for the for taxes on that money for paying it. Yeah. So like that they still maintain their numbers of the same amount of, you know what I mean? Business right. that they've only got with that increase, you know, or the same amount of tax rate, I guess, and tax paying. Right. So it did very little to kind of support the underlying business. It's just kind of like a, kind of a, a short-term raft that, mm-hmm. you know, allowed small businesses to kind of keep their operations going. And it essentially masked a lot of un, unemployment as well, in my mind, because we were incentivizing all these businesses that probably should have been laying off 90% of their staff to not lay off anybody. So I think our unemployment rate there was uh, clearly masked by these PPP loans. I mean, I don't remember the final number on it, but it was well north of 100, 200 billion dollars in PPP loans out there, and that was just, you know, paid out to people as income essentially through the businesses that received the loans. Well, I remember when this coronavirus started. Even you're talking about the PPP loans, and whether it was my brother or my wife or my other coworkers talking about. Uh, themselves just being saying, well, between all the money that you can get on uh, unemployment, why even why even have a job? So that that's that would just make me think like people that don't or aren't included in those numbers of unemployment or like work or current, you know, in the labor force or not. There were so many people during this past year, whether they were going in and the flux of like entering or exiting the workforce, so to say, that might not have just been like, well, why the hell wouldn't I just not work if I'm going to be able to collect more money by not working? You right. know? Yeah. So there was that tricky point in the economy when you're talking about the number of people working in the workforce and unemployment in the news now, whether we're going to get stimulus money for and people against. and It's a know. big mess. And it looks like a lot of these policies are just going to continue going forward. We're going to have super easy credit, super easy interest rates. They want uh, devilish policies to just keep uh, stimulating and keep supporting asset prices. It looks like Joe Biden is going to get Janet Yellen in as head of the Treasury, which, you know, Janet Yellen has a reputation for, yeah, you know, devilish policy, uh, not afraid to kind of overheat things. Uh, You know, didn't really see the housing crisis come happened when she was, I believe she was head of the Federal Reserve Board in California at the time of like the mid 2000s financial crisis uh, from the housing crisis, you know, didn't see coming, didn't advise any changes to policy and was just completely blindsided by it. But that's neither here nor there. It's, uh, you know, more of the same here. And, you know, I think the moral of the story is uh, get out of dollars. I wouldn't have a big cash position. I would be trying to invest and deploy cash instead of just leaving it buried under the mattress because uh, we're going to be fighting 
you know, at least 3% inflation a year. So the buying power of that dollar you hold is going to kind of go down by 3% a year and uh, kind of see what happens. I mean, it's definitely the U.S. is going to do it, but, you know, potentially central banks around the world are all going to, are all thinking the same thing. I think if they all try to devalue uh, in, in concert, there's, it'll be at least a, a stable devaluation of all fiat currencies. So it's not going to be that everybody's fleeing to the euro or the yen or something. It's uh, just if they all happen at the same time, they're hoping the impact is going to be minimal. But uh, I think it's it's safe to say I wouldn't be keeping uh, substantial positions in cash for the next five to 10 years as we uh, try to rebuild the economy uh, in the U.S. Yeah, all right. I think uh, I think we've we've covered a lot, Chris. It was uh, great sitting down and talking about the Fed, and uh, you know, look forward to a lot more episodes talking about issue of the day. Absolutely.